0: Welcome to the Co-Mission podcast, a place to hear talks, teaching and conversations from across the Co-Mission network. Earlier this year, Tim Keller, pastor emeritus at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, spoke to Co-Mission pastors and elders. After his talk on leadership wisdom for London, Tim Keller sat down with Matt Fuller, senior pastor of Christchurch Mayfair, for a Q&A. In a, perhaps in a small church plant, you, there are there aren't huge numbers of the leadership team. It's a small leadership team. Right. Uh, how do you how do you perhaps <clears throat> try and compensate for that? Do you I mean,
1: you mean to uh, do some of the things I was talking about, like a, a meeting to reflect on yeah yeah uh, right. meeting for wisdom and reflecting on what's happening. Yeah then to, uh, the, the here's the great advantage to a, an urban setting is that there's another church somewhere nearby. Sometimes out in the countryside your 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 next church and any kind of fellowship could be a long way away, but I would I would uh uh if you have a couple of smaller ones let let them meet and let them hear each other. In some ways, if you're actually sometimes you're inside the church and you've been doing things a certain way even for a year or two, you don't you need an outside perspective, so why not have a very small team from another church and a very small team from your church come together to talk about what you're looking at and what you're going through? It just take a certain amount of candor. It takes a certain amount of humility to talk about struggles. Uh, we 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 would like to everybody to think we're being successful, but I, that's what I would do is I would uh, I would combine forces.
0: Yeah. So let let other, really let others in and yes,
1: it sounds painful. It is. It is. I mean, except the. The Proverbs is just all about fools are wise in their own eyes, fools don't like to take correction. So, I, Americans have as much pride as you do. <laughs> so, it's not easy. So.
0: Um, I was struck by this sort of uh, decisiveness, pa- pausing. The, um, what about uh, how, how long would you just keep on going? You know, you start a church and you just keep on going, this is what we're about, these are the essentials. Uh, how often do you just keep on going with something and how often do you just, oh, we've got to change it. It doesn't seem to be working. We've got to do something new.
1: Boy, I was afraid you'd ask me that question.
0: (laughs) Oh, good. Well, that's
1: that's, actually, I should have mentioned that. It's a wisdom question. And there's no, it's one of those areas, as I said, it's obviously wise to always obey what the Bible says, but wisdom is in these areas where the Bible doesn't speak directly to it and tell you exactly what to do. And when you just, it's time to stop trying and start something, start something new and say, it hasn't worked. It just hasn't worked. When is that? That's the hardest wisdom question I know. Uh, I guess I would just treat it the way the, the uh, Proverbs does, constantly talks about uh, getting a lot of counsel, getting a lot of advisors, but then not being, lo- Not and in the end, I guess the decisiveness part is, in the end, you get a lot of advice but you still have to make a call and if if it's if you have asked 15 people and uh seven people said yes seven people said no one person said i don't know you still got to make the call you can't just keep going on forever so decisiveness means in the end this is what you have to say when when i well when i got to new york within the first year i had uh a number of people say wow, you're here to start a church. Are you sure God's called you here? <laughs> and I always said, oh no, not at all. I, have, I am not at all sure God's called me here. And they would say, well, why did you come? So what I would say is the only things I'm absolutely sure of immediately is what's in the word of God. And since there's nothing in the Bible that says you've got to go plant a church in New York City, I said, I am sure enough uh, that uh, there were good reasons. I got a lot of good advice. I sought my own heart, I thought about everything I knew in God's word, how it bore on this, and in the end, I decided to come. And I believe now that I've come, God is either going to use this, and I said, in a year or two, I'll tell you whether I think God called me. (laughs) Or God's gonna use this failure to prepare me for something else because all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So in the end, I can't be scared to make a wrong decision. So it is very hard to know when to pull the plug, but you can't be afraid of it because you, you have to say, you know, God's gonna work through this one way or the other. Uh, but, but get a lot of advice, but that is, that's the hardest question anybody ever asked me, ever. How do I know when I should stop this? Occasionally, they come and I realize they've, they've gone way beyond when almost anybody else would have stopped and I can say, cut it out. But usually it's a, que- it's a very difficult question and I can just weigh in and say, I'm not the only person you need to be talking to.
0: And, and the flip side, how, and I mean this is slightly hard in the abstract, I, get, I understand that, but uh, just to keep trying new things, new things, not to stop the old, but just to add and add mm-hmm. and add and add. Do, have you seen churches do that badly, uh, try and do too many things? Yes, in a are...
1: panicky way. Uh, they, they, they just, it's almost like they're throwing everything at the wall hoping something sticks. Yes, I, I think, and actually, uh, whereas being indecisive and not pulling the plug is a danger, the other danger is your people are going to get very confused if you totally change the, the Sunday service Totally change the music. Totally change the way which we communicate. Every few weeks, that's just that's every bit as bad. Uh, And I think that's the that's maybe another danger. I would call that impulsiveness, though. Yeah. Okay. A lack of decisiveness, but that in that case that would be impulsiveness.
0: Um, And what about money? How uh, how ambitious can you be? Did you ever uh, plan things with a large budget shortfall in Redeemer?
1: Yes. Uh, let's be more specific. There's a lot of things. What? What a,
0: Well, how ambitious? You know, so you, you're setting a budget for the next year, and you're, you you got to You know, you think, yeah, this is okay. We have got a budget shortfall, and we're projecting a twenty-five percent budget shortfall. Uh, and some are saying to you, no, Tim, you're nuts. You can't. That's not how you run a business. It's not how how do you do it? Right. How how ambitious can you be?
1: Yeah, or what did you choose to be? Uh, if it if you have a shortfall year after year and you have to get bailed out by one or two generous friends, uh, then you have, to, you, have to cha- you have to make a change, especially if it's the third year straight. But I, I, uh, there are people that have such a fear of a budget shortfall. And admittedly, so- sometimes there are people inside the church, sometimes you're, you're more robust givers, and in the business world, you don't do that ever. You never do that. Uh, and sometimes they can really make you question yourself. So very, I've, I've found that very often some of the most successful Christians, uh, meaning making a good ma- amount of money, will very often uh, rein in the ministers who say, you know, for a couple years uh, we might run a deficit, but I know this is gonna, uh, we're gonna be reaching people this way. I really think that we'll turn a corner. You've gotta have the ability to do that. You just have to, but three years running? No, don't do it. And now you've got to you've got to rein things in, or cut something, or say you're living beyond your means. But not for a year or two. I uh, that's an entrepreneur talking. Yeah. There there are definitely people who could not, cannot bear that. And uh, generally speaking, minist- I think money follows ministry vision, in general, and. Uh, uh, in the very beginning also, people are not with you a long time, there's two reasons why people uh, give. One is spiritual maturity, well three, I'll give you three. One is spiritual maturity, so the more mature Christians will give more, uh, they know biblical teaching. So one of the things you can do for that is is teach. Now It's, it's, it's very dangerous to teach a lot about biblical stewardship when people know you're running a deficit. Uh, <laughs> And they really wonder, are you really trying to get me in tune with the Lord, or are you just trying to make sure that you don't have a budget for fall? But that's one. Uh, number two is simply the vision that you're putting in front of people. And uh, that if you, if, you, if, if you spend so little that you really can't put a decent vision up there, uh, it's almost better to say, let's put the vision up there, it, it's possible we're gonna have a budget deficit for a year or so, but uh, it's the, in the end, it usually, I think, pays off financially because people get excited about what you're doing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so one reason people give is spiritual maturity. One reason people give is vision. And one reason people give is tenure. What I mean by that, the longer they are with you and the more they trust you, uh, the, uh, if they, for example, if you're a leader and the people have, are new to the church but then they go through a tough time and you walk with them through that tough time, they trust you. And so generally, people who've been with the church longer and who have, have trust you, tenure also increases the amount. I mean, most Christians give them more than one thing. Yeah. And what'll happen is when, they're, when, they, when they come in new, even in the mature ones, may not be giving you as much as they could later on, but they're, they're, they're still checking you out. They're still being biblically faithful enough to give to their local church, but they're checking you out. So membership tenure, as that grows, you walk with them, get trust, vision, and just biblical literacy about what what the Bible says about stewardship. And if you work on all three of those things, I think you'll see your money grow. Uh, It's not enough just to make people feel guilty about it. But if you're too too conservative, you actually can't give people an exciting
0: vision. Thank you. The um, wise leaders recognize it's lonely but don't give in to self-pity. uh, yeah, I, I can recognise that. Some someone's told me they feel that way. Um, uh, yeah, I have, you, I have a friend. Yeah, that's that right. Liked, that's right. Feels that, that way too. That's right. Um, how do you cope with that? Uh, I mean, for for some, not just the pastors, but elders as well. When you when you invest a lot in someone or a family, and you've you've really given of yourself, either relationally, and you think you're my friends, and right. oh now you're off, or in, with ministry, you've, you've yes. caught and, and and they just go. How do you cope and go again and give of yourself again?
1: No, you've got it. You, you're, you're, uh, you're twisting the knife on us all right there. I mean, part of the loneliness, I didn't, I didn't spell that out, but you just did a good job. Part of the loneliness is that we, you think everybody's with you, but people come and go, and you're still there hold, trying to hold everything together. And uh, it becomes, uh, you begin to feel like, does nobody care about this thing but me? Uh, Well, self-pity is a form of pride. And uh, there's a fair amount in the Bible about it. I mean, you've got two good Psalms about it. You've got Psalm 37 and Psalm 73 that both talk a lot about self-pity. And the feeling like... uh, you know, or Elijah, kill me right now. Uh, there's nobody, le- I'm the only one left. Now there's Elijah who felt, and Jesus, I mean, the Lord says, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And many people think that that's actually a, you know, a symbolic figure. There was more than 7,000 people. But at the moment, uh, Elijah was at that place where he saying, nobody cares but me. And i am just, I've had it. So I, when I read it, Elijah, I read Psalm uh, 37 I talk frankly to a couple other, at this point you almost have to go to some other people who are your peers and probably not inside the church. Somebody else who you think is roughly similar uh, situation and who's probably faced the same thing and go to them and just be honest. Pray with that person, be a bit accountable to that person. Um, talk about the discouragement. Very difficult to do inside the church, but it would, just, it would discourage people. I don't, I don't think it's hiding. I don't think it's a lack of honesty. I just think it's prudent. I think it's wise. So I would say a certain passage of the Bible will help you with self-pity. You do have to recognize a lot of it is a kind of self-righteousness. Uh, you're suffering and you're starting to feel noble. And so you bring the gospel humble yourself, but find somebody else, a couple other people out there they are probably not right around the corner. They might be, who you, who you feel like could understand you and you could be accountable to. So.
0: Uh, I wonder if I might ask, the, um, when have you found yourself most paralyzed and just thought, in church leadership, I, we, we just don't know what to do. What, what, what was that sort of scenario? How did you work your way out of it?
1: Uh, there was a, well I didn't. I, I mean you, <laughs> endure, you endure it and you pop out the other end and you really don't. Uh, so for a, a good example was I had a fairly long period Almost right in the middle of my 28 years as the pastor of Redeemer, almost right in the middle, where I was looking for a number two, uh, you might say, uh, a uh, a steward, you know, someone who could run this, this ship and report to me. The church was pretty large and very complicated, and we had a number of major disappointments in trying to uh, find somebody. And at a certain point, I I really felt I cannot hold this up. I I haven't been able to hold up. It's been years since I've been able to run this thing myself. And uh, I, you say, how did you get through it? I, di- I didn't exactly, it just, we kept praying, we kept working, I kept thinking everything's gonna fall apart, but in the end we popped out the other side. Most, most people um, don't feel like they solve those situations as much as they endure them. And they, they just keep from complete panicking in prayer. What, what, I, what I'll say, I, I, yeah, what I will say is at times like that you, can, you will find a psalm or two with your name on it. <laughs> there, every, the psalms uh, represent every possible human situation you could be in and they also represent every possible human emotion you could have. And they don't just represent it, it's not like a poem that just, they also tell you how to process that in prayer before God. And that's your only—that's that's your only solution. When you—when solution when you've actually exhausted all the human solutions, you've you, you've done everything you possibly can do. That's that's it. Because only in, the, the only real way to lose is if you go under. Mm. If you become proud, if you become bitter, if you become anxious. So at this point, you realize, you know, solving this number two guy thing solving the the personnel problem is not my biggest danger. My biggest danger is that I spiritually start to break. It'll come out in the preaching. I'll start to get cynical. Uh, That's the only thing that can really kill this church. Yeah, well, I said the worst that could happen is the Redeemer shrinks so poorly. And a lot of people get upset with me and leave. And it shrinks. Okay, is that the end of the world? No, what's the end of the world is if I have an affair or if I... uh, you know, get in, go into depression and, and I'm not able to preach or something like that. So, go to, go to the Psalms and, and look to yourself. Take heed to yourself, so. I,
0: I, um, this is just, uh, I think perhaps it's quite easy for, from this side of the pond to, to be aware of your ministry, to hear of the story of, of Redeemer as much as we know it, and think, oh, well, there we go, there, there's wisdom. Tim Keller, he's a very wise man. And um, uh, no doubt, uh, there are bright people in Manhattan who you know he had a a community of wise people around him. And uh, um, if you're, you know, if you're wise, if you've, then it's all quite straightforward. And um, you don't, you don't have to. It's easy. When
1: you're wise, it's all easy, right? So,
0: I think my question is: um, Is growing a church hard work? Was it growing? Was it hard work for you?
1: Yes. (laughs) Need I say? Of course, it's. It's, um, the, it's agony and ecstasy, so, but it's, uh, every May I wanted to quit the ministry for the last 28 Mays. <laughs> I was just so tired. So, if that surprises you, why would it surprise you, really? Why would it surprise you, honestly? I hope it doesn't, but if it does, okay, now the surprise is over, right? It'll never be surprised again.
0: But, but but on that when you, you um, demonstrably haven't committed qu- quitted in the last twenty eight years. No, I didn't actually. Uh, but how do you um, how do you know when it's the time to you just got to draw back? But you know may, you may be an elder and you just need oh, a year oh. off. You just need a term <clears throat> off. You're a pastor. Yes. You just say, guys, I, I, I think it's time for sabbatical, or or yes. I could be in trouble here. How how do you discern those sort of things?
1: I <clears throat> I. Um, That's, it. well, I mean, we, we uh, at a certain point, my, my elders actually uh, kind of woke up. I mean, I think there was a sentence. I started the church, and so I became this sort of larger-than-life figure to a lot of people because so many of the people became Christians in the church, and a lot of the elders had become Christians in the church. So uh, there, I think there was a sense like, well, you know, Tim actually doesn't get too tired. Or he doesn't get in despair. And, I, and my wife actually says I, that I'm not as transparent about those things as I should be. Uh, the, my elders at a certain point, I, I, I had thyroid cancer when I was 52, which is 15 years ago. And during that time I basically, for the first time in my life I had to be away from the pulpit for um, almost three months. Almost three months. And that had never happened before. And during that time I realized that in some ways the thyroid cancer had saved me. Now, uh, I, <laughs> I, you know, I, was, I tre- was treated properly. But I realized you know I, I needed this. I needed this and I never ever would have taken it myself. And actually after that, uh, when I came back, I, I put in, um, I decided that I couldn't actually, my church could not uh, again, have me away for a while. Uh, Redeemer was, a, I, I had a long ramp. I did hand off Redeemer, some of you know. We divided Redeemer into three churches. They're very large. They're, each of the churches is between 1,500 and 2,000 people. I, we divided into three. <clears throat> They're each self-supporting. Each of them has to start three other churches in the next 10 years. Uh, and it took me about eight years to get to the spot where I could do that. And during that eight years, I just couldn't be away. I just couldn't. I knew that if I, um, so I actually built in sabbatical to my life. So every single week, year from the uh, first week of July to the second week of August, I had six weeks off. Three weeks of writing and study, had three weeks of vacation, which is, and it was away from New York City. So six weeks is a long time. But I told everybody, if you want me to be here till the end, I need that. So I didn't take, so it was every single year. However, uh, we went into a, uh, a, uh, a program in which both elders and other pastors and staff people, not just pastors, but staff people also got a two month sabbatical every so often. Okay. So yeah, I actually think that, that weirdly enough, the cancer was a huge help. I realized that I, I probably wouldn't have made it if I hadn't had cancer, think about that. Yeah. So, talk about God working through suffering.
0: One of my, um, one sort of little specific area for, for uh, how churches think, and sort of a very practical one for, for, for lots of the guys here. Um, is it right, one of, when you had departments of Redeemer, one of the five was faith and work, I mean, that's, or something like that, but anyway. Yes. But, but one, of, one the, of the five, you're good. Um, uh, occasionally. Um, you, you're spies.
1: <laughs> Your spies have given you good intel. Um,
0: the, on that whole area, though, how do you, uh, both for us in our own thinking, and in also how you lead a church, avoid, if I can caricature, polls. Good. Um, at the one hand... Uh, work is all your work is all secular work, unless it's of the gospel. It's just utterly meaningless. Doesn't matter if you're an architect, a doctor, artist. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're wasting your time. That right pole.
1: Just give us your money, so we can go yep. preach the gospel. Yeah.
0: Right. Oh uh, no, the other ext- extreme, or the other poll, um, The work, all secular work, is so significant
1: Christians um, that Christians are that
0: actually it devalues <clears throat> a gospel. Yeah a view of eternity and people are going to hell and hell. Right.
1: At that end of the spectrum, you've got people saying uh, the Christians are actually building a Christian culture. Uh, they're, uh, They're transforming culture through their worldview. And even the things that are going to, that you're doing right now will somehow be brought over into the new heavens and new earth. So that tends to say the church, building up the church, evangelism is not so important. It's everybody doing their work. That's the other end of the spectrum. And so now we have, by creating these caricatures, you've given me this wonderful opportunity to say that I'm not at either end of the spectrum. Okay. Okay. (laughs) No, 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 absolutely. Um, Three things. One is the most important thing you can do for anybody is to bring them to a saving faith of Christ, which because, when you look at what happened in Genesis 3, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, the first relationship that of course blew up was the relationship with God. So now they're hiding from God, they're afraid. But you notice everything else that happens. Uh, they have to hide from each other, so there's, uh, their social relationships have changed. Uh, they, uh, have, you know, God says that the ground is cursed so now thorns and thistles will come up. So there's uh, all the other relationships, social relationships, economic relationships, material relationships. There's all kinds of things wrong with the world and they're all the results of sin. So crime, racism, um, you know, environmental uh, uh, pollution, these are all effects of sin, but they all come from being out of fellowship with God. So the most radical thing you can ever do to help somebody is to evangelize them. So evangelism is still the most single most important thing Having said that, as we know what the Bible says, that we're justified by faith alone, but not by faith which stays alone. You're justified by faith without works, but the faith, if it doesn't lead to actual works, it's not real faith. And those works are not only evangelism, because you've got the second great commandment, you just love your neighbor, Um, there's the Old Testament is filled with with, uh, calls for doing justice. So what I would say is, in faith and work, you are discipling people to say, what is the implications of Christianity for not just my private life, or the weekends, or my church life, but for every part of my life? Does my faith, does the Bible have anything to say about the way in which I teach children? Does it have anything to say about the way in which I work in the government? Does it? And of course the answer is gonna be yes. So faith at work is trying to say, your work matters to God, every part of your life it shouldn't be compartmentalized. It's not just like, well, on the weekends, you're working with the Lord and you're evangelizing, but during the rest of the week, you're really, you're just working. Uh, we would say, with Martin Luther, you ought to realize that any work you do is a way of loving your neighbor. So if you're making toothbrushes, you're, you're loving your neighbor because you're enabling them to brush their teeth. Uh, I've got somebody, uh, that when my wife is, uh, has a, uh, uh, you know, some physical problems. So somebody comes in and cleans our home every so often. And unless my wife does it or I do it or some, that person does it, that's menial labor. But if somebody doesn't do that, we're gonna die. And so basically that person who is, happens to be, a, by the way, a radiant Christian woman from uh, um, the, the West Indies is a, uh, and a good friend, Uh, she's loving her neighbor. So you need to see that your work has dignity, that all work is a way of loving your neighbor, and your work has to be influenced by your faith. It can't just be one part of your life that has nothing to do with faith. But when it comes to, uh, is it more important than evangelism, does it replace evangelism? No. And by the way, just just for the record, I also, uh, you know, I do believe that we ought to try to be salt and light in the culture. I do believe that, Christians who are just living their Christian life out there will keep a culture from being as dark and as decayed and decadent as it ought to be. But if I, I, have no, I have no confidence that some work you do now somehow will be brought into the new heavens and new earth, nor do I say that in any book, contrary to what maybe some people have said.
0: See, that is interesting because I've, I've had people say to right. me, Tim Keller says that every tree you plant in this creation goes into the next every letter you write, every book you write, every symphony you write in this creation will be in the next. Is that what you say? No. No. Okay.
1: I don't say it anywhere. (laughs) I do understand where some people might get the impression. Put it this way. There are people out there who say that who invoke me. There's people, the, the, the trouble with the books is there's so many books. So if you, I've seen my book on prayer, which I think is very, very critical of contemplative Catholic mysticism, I think it's very critical, especially if you read the end notes. <laughs> I've still seen it invoked as a form of kind of mysticism. So, yeah, I guess I should be complimented that so many people uh, want to invoke me, but uh, very often that means that they're invoking me and they give you the impression that I buy everything that, of the invokee. Is there, is there such a word? <laughs> okay, not in this case.
0: Um just two other things just little things write me on that one the um love the Lord you've got love your neighbor uh again I, I i think hearing people misrepresent you sometimes it's oh you know well, t- the problem with uh Tim Keller's view on works is he encourages everyone to you know it's work is all about me, work is all about my fulfillment, work is all about I can build something for myself when actually just the language of, you, know, right. you do your job for the sake of other people. Yes.
1: is Yeah, I mean, uh, what, uh, actually that's the modern understanding of work as a way of advancing yourself or fulfilling yourself or real self-realization. When you've, you've got two, you've got two Reformation traditions, you might say, that actually some of them work for, these two traditions actually apply better with some jobs than others. The Lutheran Luther, when he expounds Psalm 145, I think, 147, he, he, he places where, the, where it says God feeds every living thing. Okay, it's in the Bible, God feeds every living thing, but now the food's not appearing on your table, so how is he doing that? And he says the answer is that through farming, through people bringing the farm, through food processing. So he says the simplest farm girl who's milking a cow is doing God's work. So one end of the spectrum, which I think is, a, is very biblical, is you need to realize that all your work has dignity. Everything you're doing, even the simple menial task, is God's way of caring for his creation because the Bible says so. The other Reformation tradition is the Calvinist, which does talk more about the fact that you need to bring uh, the word of God to bear on every profession. And there'll be a lot of things that a Christian wouldn't do as a doctor, and there are certain ways that Christians would be artists and they would, they would be talking more about Christian world and life view. So uh, that's my, my understanding is no, not the, uh, I'm not trying to, in fact, actually I'm not trying all way, at all to encourage careerism or a Christian careerism at all, but really trying to help people see, really a joy in what they're doing and recognize that I can be doing this for God. Ephesians 6.
0: Yeah. So is it helpful to think in terms of, uh, I'm a simple soul, sometimes think, God's cr- plan before the creation of the world was to save a people for himself. That was, that's the master plan. Yes. To unite all things under Christ in a sort of Ephesians one way. That, that's the sort of the master plan. But he does providentially care for his world. Um, yeah. And, 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 and he will, there will, by the way, I'm not
1: saying I know that what I do today goes into the new heavens and new earth. But the fact is we're not just saved to go to heaven. God created both matter and spirit He's redeeming both matter and spirit. We're not only being saved spiritually, but we're resurrected. And so what that does mean is that there must be something about the created world that God just loves as a good in itself. Uh, yet, Here's where I am, forgive me, don't, no time to go. Here's where I'm infralapsarian, not superlapsarian. Sorry, we Presbyterians, you know, put up with me for a minute. I, I do believe that in the end, salvation is going to achieve a material World uh, with resurrected bodies and people. And so there must be something about this world that God just loves. That it's not simply a theater for salvation narratives. It's not simply a place where we decide whether to become Christians or not and go to heaven. It's a place where and it's, there must be something about this world that God must love, because he's actually gonna renew and restore it. And so the, the end point of saving a people for himself is a renewed world. So that's the reason why, even if I'm working right now, say, if a Christian is a work a lawyer working for justice or a farmer or a gardener just making the world beautiful, he, I don't see he's got any uh, uh, assurance that the flower he's planting right now or anything he does now or the music is gonna somehow be in the new creation, no. But there will be music in the new creation, which means that doing music can't just be a kind of... Uh, uh, just a sideline as opposed to preaching the gospel. There, it, it obviously is something that God must love. I mean, ministers will be out of a job, yeah. and, me, and doctors. Any of, any, any of you are physicians or medical, we will be out of a job. We're gonna to have to figure out something else like maybe music.
0: But is that okay then? So, so I think in terms of the, uh, you know, God has a, the, 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 his master plan um, and he providentially cares for this world. And Christians, you gotta think about eternity and the salvation of souls for eternity. Yes. And you care about this world while you're in it, and, and you care for it, and you, and you do the jobs you, you're given to do, and you, you do them in a way which is pleasing to the Lord. And
1: Well, I guess I'm trying to say God cares about this world not as a means to an end, but an end in itself. He's gonna renew it. He doesn't have to. Why not just burn it up and have no... See, either he's gonna burn it up and it's gonna be replaced, we were talking about this at dinner, or it's, there's gonna be some continuity, I don't know. But the fact is, why would he replace it? You know, wh- why does Jesus have a resurrected body? You know, why, wh- why did he eat a fish? I mean obviously, that's remarkable to me. Uh, it's not the sort of thing that anybody could have made up. It's one of the reasons why I believe that gospel narratives or the resurrection narratives are absolutely historically valid. But I just don't think we ought to get into a position where the world, this world actually doesn't seem to matter to us no. because it matters a lot to God.
0: So do you, do you sort of resist or are you okay with the sort of, the, the sort of soundbite or sloganing of, uh, as Christians we care for all suffering, but especially e- eternal suffering? Yeah,
1: yeah, sure. I mean it's the same, it's the same way of saying um, the Good Samaritan parable, obviously the best way to help a person who's whose life is ruined is to save their soul. But Jesus forbids you to think it's the only way. Same thing with suffering, sure. Yeah.
0: Thanks for listening to the Co-Mission podcast. Check out and share a video version of this talk on our Facebook page. Just search for Co-Mission. Next week, a conversation about church planting with two of our pioneer church planters and director of church planting for Co-Mission, Richard Perkins.